As you turn to Acts 26.19, if you have Bibles, we will be ending finally a long episode of Acts, kind of, kind of, in Paul's life. Uh, the episode has been a series of trials and defenses for Paul, and I've rehashed the story several times in my preaching, so I'll probably rehash it less today. But suffice it to say, I think without all the background, if you haven't been here, you'll still track fairly well. What's happening right now is that Paul has been basically wrongfully accused. He's seen through what he's been accused of, and he says, really, it's about Christ. That's what my enemies are out to get me for. And so instead of going through dragged up trials as he has been, he recently appealed to the emperor Caesar. Paul is both Jewish and Roman, so he can do that. And before he heads off to Caesar, though, the latest Roman governor that he's been under, Festus, has had the company of the local client Jewish king, Agrippa, to hear Paul's defense. And Festus wants Agrippa's input on Paul's case so he, Festus, can have some intelligible reasons as to why Paul has had to go all the way to Caesar's court for a ruling. What Paul has done has basically given his testimony, and we cut off the story last week right after Christ had confronted Paul. Paul is in the middle of uh, his persecuting, and Christ just shows up and commissions Paul to be a witness to the Gentiles. So we're going to pick it up from there in Acts 26.19. I do invite you to stand, if you're able, in honor of hearing the word of the Lord. Paul says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and to those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, must suffer. And that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It is to him I am actually speaking boldly. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish for God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today, might become as I am, except for these chains. So the king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, This man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. 
Father, as we look through the remainder of this story, we trust that you are the author of these words. We trust that your word is living and active. We ask, Lord, that you would hold nothing back, but instead speak to us, speak to our hearts and ears and minds. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you not only inspire the writing of these words, but you give us the power to act on them, to be obedient, to do what we know is right. And so we ask that you would have your way today. Help us to remain yielded and soft towards you and your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What I see in these verses are five responses to Christ. Just immediately before this, Paul recounts of his being confronted and he says, but from Christ, he was told, but get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I will I now send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Opening blind eyes. People in this world without Christ are blind. We talked about this last week. Turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. We talked about this as well. From the world's ways, the world's darknesses, the world's problems, and turning towards light, God's light, His truth, His selflessness, and His sacrificial love, His grace. And then Paul said, and we unpacked about forgiveness, that the problem that many have and may not even know is guilt. Guilt that we share in the same evil and the same sins that we actually likely find offensive in the world. And the problem can be handled first, foremost, and utmost by forgiveness of sins by God. We were made to commune with Him, and when our sin is the problem, the hindrance and the obstruction from us living into our purpose, which is again, communion with God who made us, can only be rectified by forgiveness by Christ. We gain our place among those who are sanctified, says Christ. And to this truth, we find or see in this passage five responses to Christ. We will see Paul's. We will see devout, angry Jews' response. We will see Festus' response, Agrippa's response, and then I sum up the thinking between Festus and Agrippa as the world's response. First we see in Paul's response, one of trust and obedience. As if we just sang a song about that. Just after Paul gave this testimony of Christ confronting him with realities that are shocking to the Jewish mind, the Messiah, the Christ, for both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. Here is what Paul says in verse 19 and 20. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first 
and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. Let's not read briefly or overlook the implications here. Paul, formerly a persecuting Jewish zealot, a Pharisee, completely offended by Christ, offended by the Christians who would say that the Jewish Messiah came not only to bleed and die, that's not a triumphant warrior, but also rise again and offer salvation to not only Jews, but to the world, to the Gentiles. This sort of stuff enraged Paul. And here he is saying, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Can you do that? Can you respond? Do you respond that way to Christ? You know, oftentimes Christ calls us to uncomfortable things. Sometimes, maybe not most of the time, but things that don't make even make sense. Build a boat. Why? It will rain. A lot. Why? I'm wiping out mankind. We're going to start over. Right. Right. Oh, okay. Leave everybody and everything you've ever known. Why? I'm calling you out and starting a people for me. Who are you? The one true God, your creator. Are you in? Okay, I'm in. Right? Paul is told that everything he assumed he thought he knew about Yahweh is revealed and brought to its fullness in Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh. It's completely unexpected, entirely upside down, with a commission to go to the last people he wanted to be around, non-Jews, Gentiles. But Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Right? He cannot deny what he just saw with his own eyes. It was real, it was tangible, it was in front of him. And I wonder, and I speak this entirely from personal experience, but I wonder if sometimes we use deliberation, counting the cost, skepticism. Well, I need to be in prayer about that a lot. As really just disobedience in disguise. Doubt. A failure to trust in disguise. Maybe God didn't clothesline you and give you a commission as he did Paul, but what he said was real and clear enough. His speaking by his spirit upon your heart was loud enough. But unlike Paul, the reality dies under the weight of what God is saying. Because what he's saying has implications or realities that you or I may not be ready to tackle. Paul wasted no time. Now, maybe a more gentler, cautious Paul would deliberate his next move into stagnation, but Paul wasted no time. And instead, I preached to those in Damascus first. Remember, that's where he was going to arrest the Christians. But he came there and he continued to preach to, to Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. You know, Paul could have debated a lot. Will they really receive this message from me? Uh, I have a history they'll need to get over. Do Do I really have it all figured out? But instead of these things, he goes and he preaches that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. 
Listen, friend, Protestant. Paul or the Bible never preaches an easy believism. Notice Paul didn't go everywhere and declare, believe Christ died for you, period, moving on. No. Just how God clotheslined Paul, didn't even give him an altar call or time for an argument, just flat out commissioned him, so Paul is hard at saying, repent, change your mind, turn to God, live in His kingdom, and live righteous before Him. Do works worthy of repentance. And it's not perform to show that you've repented. Rather, it's if you've repented, your works should be consistent with that. You hear that subtle but big difference? So Paul's response to Christ and his preaching about Christ is trust and obedience. Doing works worthy of repentance. Is that your response to Christ? Do you really believe God? Not the, well, I see he talks to people in the scripture. He could be talking to me. I don't know. No, rather, that's a big deal, Lord. That's a tall order, but I'll do it. Here we go. (laughs) That's Paul, trust and obedience. Next is the devout, angry Jews, and they are too righteous for truth. Let's read verses 21 through 23. But he says, oopsie. Let me go back, sorry. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. Here's what Paul is saying, if you know the history. Paul was originally accused of bringing an Ephesian into the temple. A a Gentile, non-Jew, into the temple. He never did that. Now, he was seen around Jerusalem with the Ephesian, but he never brought him into the temple. However, the non-Christian Jews used this argument to arouse the original riot in the temple. And Paul is saying, and he has said all along, that's not the crux of why I was attacked. It was for this reason that I preach Jesus. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles freely. Salvation is offered freely to both. Invitation is given freely to turn to God and repent and live righteous before Him, Jew and Gentile. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me, is what Paul says. Furthermore, to this very day, I have obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify. Paul is saying is that it is by the grace of God that he has persisted since that day in the temple. He's been two years in in, in prison, spared and rescued from at least two assassination attempts on behalf of the Sanhedrin. God has helped him. So Paul can continue to testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. We said this last week, but Paul is saying it's nothing new. I merely preach what the Old Testament has always taught, that the Messiah would suffer, would rise, and would bring salvation to Jews and Gentiles. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, rights, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. Crushed because of our iniquities. 
Punishment for our peace was on Him, and we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. Still further in verse 11, My righteous servant will justify many, or make many righteous, and He will carry their iniquities. This is usually called the suffering servant poem. And there are actually four poems in Isaiah dedicated to this servant. Matthew tells us in his gospel that the servant is none other than Jesus. And in fact, the same poem that Matthew recites is from Isaiah 49. In verse 6 there it says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The servant, the Messiah, proclaims light and salvation both to Jews and to Gentiles. Paul is saying this is what's in the prophets. So the implication, the implications though, for the devout, angry Jews were too much. It would, like Paul before them, require unlearning what they've learned. Jews and Gentiles? It would require humility. As Jesus and John the Baptist ushered in the kingdom, they said things like, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Furthermore, John the Baptist would have the audacity to tell the Jews, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. It was and is about real repentance, not having the right ancestry, the right church even. But repentance, trusting in God, and the devout angry Jews, we're too righteous for truth. Does that ever happen? I know it doesn't happen for any of you, but for me sometimes I think I, I, I think I just I have it all figured out. Just don't confuse me with any facts. <laughs> I got my beliefs down. And sometimes the Lord, either directly or through his people, confronts me with truth, and I'm just too righteous to hear it. The fact of the matter is, is we become unrighteous. And as Jesus quotes Isaiah to the Pharisees, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. How is your heart? Is it far from God? Are you too caught up with all the commands of men, all the human precepts that you've, you've learned to even consider what God would say? Well, the devout, angry Jews in Jesus' day missed it. I wonder if some of us respond like Festus. That's our third of five responses today. Let's see how he responds in verses 24 and 25. It says, as he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. Out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning, too much study. You know what Paul writes to the church in Corinth? He says, For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Foolishness. Here Paul is, two years into being imprisoned, and he's going on about this Jesus guy. As Festus worded it privately to Agrippa in the previous chapter, he says, instead, they, the devout angry Jews, had some disagreements with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. It's crazy. The Festus, the Roman, was he was the Western enlightened guy like we are, right? Dead people don't rise. Festus was willing to listen to up to this point, but he still doesn't get it. He doesn't get why Paul's fired up about Christ. He doesn't get why the Jews want to kill him. But the way that Paul's talking, he's crazy. And I wonder if this can be your or my response to Christ sometimes, or even to the Word of God. You know, it really hits me most times I write messages for funerals, especially if I know non-believers will be present, or folks just not often in the church. Let's just be honest, this is a a unique presentation. (laughs) I get what Paul means by Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. A lot of people don't get this, like Festus. You know, he's probably thinking, wow, how does Paul know so much? A library of like 60, well, not all 66 books were under his belt like we have in the Bible right now, but how does Paul know a library of books? How is he an esteemed leader, a Pharisee in his religion, but he's infatuated with a dead man who was condemned to a cross? And Paul is shouting back because he's alive. And Paul knows how it sounds. He would say back in 1 Corinthians 1.21, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. It can sound foolish. I get that when I prepare messages expecting some folks who are foreign to the Scriptures. It was foolish to Festus. Is it sometimes foolish to you? I mean, even if you're saved, sometimes if you're not careful, there's there's parts in us that react in confusion and ridicule. Like, really? Really? I can't believe that's in the Bible. (laughs) I can't believe that God's concerned with that. Kevin, you need a hobby because you study too much and you overanalyze too much last week, which I can agree with that. But sometimes our reaction is not to receive, accept, or to give a genuine consideration or a yielded submission to what's being said or what God is saying. Rather, we would audaciously wear the judge in the gown and say, that's weird, no thanks. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. Or some translations would say, I'm speaking the sober truth. This is just a word picture, so it's not meant to be irreverent because it's not true in the truest sense. But God's dumbest day still baffles the wisest man. Paul says these things he talks about aren't only true, but they're of good judgment. It's not a game. It's not myths, fairy tales, and legends. It's a truth that has real personal, responsive implications. And so now these words of truth and good, with these words of truth and good judgment, Paul turns his focus towards Agrippa. We pick it up in verse 26. For the king knows about these matters. It is to him I'm actually speaking boldly, 
For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice. This was not done in a corner. Since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. It's interesting how relatable and identifiable this is. Because Paul is pointing to a public testimony and to scriptures of public access. This is believed to be near the end of the 50s, maybe early 60s AD. And so Paul is talking about things that are only 30 years old. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but Agrippa is actually part of the Herod family, and he has close relatives that murdered the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, that beheaded John the Baptist, that martyred the Apostle James, and was close to doing that with Peter. And so, as Paul has said, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice since this was not done in a corner. This Christian thing was real, and it was taking over. Acts chapter 21, when Paul first arrived in Jerusalem, before he got arrested, he was told by an elder in the church, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews, that's not counting the Gentiles, there are who have believed. And he's just referring to Jerusalem. Thousands of believers. Whether Agrippa himself was around for Jesus, his ministry, and his resurrection, Agrippa, in fact, nobody can deny by this point, there's something going on. It's public. There are believers. There's worshipers in Christ. Just as it is today, I don't know if you were here a month or so ago when our assistant superintendent, Alan Wynock, was here, but one of the points he made is that by you and me being here means something. It's a witness to our community. As Jesus told opponents in his day, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Who Christ is and who his people are, it's no secret. And besides the public testimony, Paul says to the Jewish king Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. First of all, if we take into context, Agrippa is getting backed into a corner, politically speaking. Perhaps it's intentional on behalf of Paul's motives, because it's not just Paul, Festus, and Agrippa here. We were told at the beginning that the social elites of Caesarea Martima, the Roman capital of Judea, they're all present. It could be that even Paul's original Jewish accusers are present. And so if Agrippa says he does not believe the prophets, he would be showing his true colors. And if that's how he felt, he would anger his Jewish subjects because he just said, I'm not a faithful Jew. But if Agrippa says, yes, he does believe the prophets, then he would be forced to furthermore either affirm or deny that the Messiah that Festus just belittled in front of him, he he's going to have to answer if he believes in him or not. And and what does this mean if he sides with Paul, this insane, crazy, overlearned Paul that Festus says he is? Thus, then Agrippa says to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And if you say that's a little unclear, it's, it's supposed to be. It is. Greek uh, biblical scholars disagree. They don't know if Agrippa's being sarcastic, sarcastic and angry, if he's just teasing. But what seems most obvious is that at least he's delaying. He's delaying and minimizing. You know, I met a few people in my life who maybe it's because they just want to be friendly and not get into a religious argument or run me off. But this is their tactic. Delay and minimize. Sound halfway convinced. 
You know, you make sense. You're a nice person. And what you say about the Bible is interesting. And that's kind of where it stops. (laughs) It's not where it stops for Jesus. He doesn't make sense. He's the way, the truth, and the life. More than a nice person, He's Lord, Savior, and King. And what He and the Word of God says is more than interesting. It's the honest truth and it's what will stand forever. And I get from Agrippa and people like him who respond this way, kind of this polite, positive, affirming nod and then a shrug. It's kind of passive. Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Agrippa says, I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. Where Agrippa delays in kind of a political sidestep response, Paul tries to rein it in and says, let's press this issue. (laughs) Here's my desire. Everyone in earshot would love this Jesus would serve this Jesus, would accept and repent and do deeds that are consistent with faith in this Jesus. But to this basic open confrontation, we get one last response, and I call it the world's response. It's my catch-all phrase for the conversation between Festus and Agrippa, the rulers, the talking heads, the people who do the thinking for the rest of the world. In verse 30, it says, So the king, the governor, Bernice, Agrippa's sister, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Here's what I see in this. This same passive, delayed, minimized response carries over into what's just plain ignorance and moving on. Because King Agrippa is king, he can do this conveniently when the topic of discussion is intensely personal Does he believe the Scriptures? What are his thoughts about the Messiah? Conveniently, because he's king, he ignores the subject. He rises, uh, which brings the proceedings to a halt, a change of subject. You know, I've heard enough. Oh, because you got something to say about you and the Messiah? No, because this man Paul's basically innocent. (laughs) And the subject's changed. It's ignorance and moving on. And the Agrippas of the world who are passive and shrug offish and polite and oh, that's interesting and you're a nice person and wow, what you say about the Bible is something to think about. Well then say, well, I haven't made a decision about Christ. Let's just leave that up in the air. When the reality is indifference is a decision. Indifference is a decision. This Jesus, this Jesus that Agrippa just kind of shrugged and prodded Paul A little, oh, you want to make me a Jesus follower? That Jesus? Listen to what he says. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Maybe a Jewish king against his Jewish adherents. And a man's enemies who will be the members of his household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. 
I don't think that Jesus looks for indifference. He doesn't find disciples and, oh, that's interesting. I don't think He's interested in, that was an interesting conversation. Are you trying to convert me? Yeah, unashamedly. But the world, Agrippa, the social elites, well, things to do. Too busy for Christ. Moving on, let's ignore the subject altogether. And He's wacky, but He's not deserving punishment. All right, well, back to ruling my kingdom. Yeah, I would have encouraged you to set him free. Too bad he's appealed to the emperor and the subject has been safely brushed aside, forgotten. It's almost like when two sinners who sin, but then they promise not to tell anybody. I feel like if Paul was in any other setting, if he wasn't before social superiors, if he wasn't in chains and he didn't have to measure his responses, he would have pushed further. So what's your response? Listen, if you're a Christian, great, this message is still for you. Because Christ just said, have you lost your life for Him? Lost your life? Have you taken up the cross to follow Him? Do you love others more than Him? Christ did not show up to Paul and say, do you believe in me? He didn't say that. That wasn't even a question. It's actually kind of a dumb question to ask when you're standing right before Him, so that's probably why. No, God showed up to Paul and then gave a directive that had implications. Effort was required. Energy was required. Suffering was required. One whole life is required. Paul was no longer a man free to do what he wanted to do. He was to be a living sacrifice, as if he wrote that somewhere. So what's your response? Is it trust and obedience like Paul? Are you truly willing I have an inkling that the Holy Spirit already told you what you need to be doing, but if not, are you willing to listen and willing to do it? I wonder if like the devout, angry Jews, maybe you have a little attorney rising up in your heart and you're ready to even quote Scripture to get the Holy Spirit to back down. (laughs) I know I like to do that. It makes me feel better in my disobedience. We're too busy worshiping God in the ways we want to worship Him to listen. we got busyness to keep ourselves occupied. We can't let that Holy Spirit interfere with His work. We already have the compartment in our lives we call Christian work, and that's good enough for us. Maybe you or I are confused like Festus was. If we are confused, I wonder if the stuff we do understand about what God's calling us to do really scares us. We do know what He wants, and so we cling on to the confusion and we ridicule the stuff that scares us. He can't be calling me to that. No, I have a brain problem. God isn't saying that. Not me. Certainly not me. That's not what He's calling me to do. Or, like Agrippa, we just delay and minimize. You know, if He's calling me to this, it's probably like 40 years down the road. And besides, why me? (laughs) There are a lot more fitter, younger people out there to do this job, this task, this calling that God's probably not even calling me for anyways. By the grace of God, let this not be a time where you or I ignore and change the subject. Like Agrippa and Festus, let's not move on. Let's receive what the Lord wants today. He's given us 
His Holy Spirit to be obedient. I, I think a lot of us, myself included, every time I hear a message like that, I just seem to completely black out that truth. He has given us His Holy Spirit to be obedient. We have all the resources we need to do whatever He calls us to do at any point in time, no matter our age, condition, station. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He can do it through a willing and obedient vessel. He can do it to a man who's been imprisoned for two years, talking to two kings that would probably slaughter him if they felt like it, and nobody would bat an eye. He can do it through a willing and obedient vessel. Amen? Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, these are some questions at the end of our study today that perhaps we should refer back to. As Paul's urgency states, it is his desire that any man would be like he is except for without the chain. So it is my desire, myself included, that I would be like Paul was except for without the chains. So Father, for any of us who are willing and obedient, first of all, would you forgive us for the times we've been disobedient? Would you forgive us for the times that we have minimized what you're calling us to do, that we have deliberated, debated, and shrugged off, and done anything we can to make sure the voice we're hearing isn't saying what it could be saying? But Father, I'm pretty certain you've probably been loud and clear. Help us to just receive and to trust, and trust requires action. So these questions, have I lost my life for you? Father, do I trust and obey you? If I'm confused as to why you would call me, do I ridicule the notions that I do get? Father, do I delay my obedience and do I minimize what you're calling me to do? Or would I ignore you and just change the subject? Father, I pray all these things that would not be so, that instead we would be willing and obedient. Help us to follow you. Thank you for your death. For your resurrection, thank you again for the Holy Spirit who empowers us to righteous living, to do deeds worthy of repentance, as your word says. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. 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 Yeah. Yes.